Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Hey, it's Todd. Before we get started, if you like what you hear or you have any questions about this podcast, please tweet at me at, at Todd underscore Garner on Twitter. Look forward to hearing from you. For nearly 30 years, Todd Garner has overseen blockbuster films like Con Air, Anger Management, Triple X, 13 Going on 30, and Black Hawk Down. Why are they letting you make these movies? Join Todd as he shares tips and stories from the front lines of producing in Hollywood. I'm Adam Sandler. I'm Rebel Wilson. This is Jeff Probst. This is Marla Wayans. I'm Eli Roth. Hey, it's Ed Helms. This is Shay Mitchell. Hey everybody, this is Kevin James, and this is The Producer's Guide. The Producer's Guide. The Producer's Guide. The Producer's Guide, the producer's guide with Todd Todd Garner. Todd Garner. Todd Garner. What a combination. A lot of times on this podcast, people ask me, why are you doing this podcast? You're a producer. Why? What are you getting out of it? And I have a lot of different answers about why I did it. And what I'm getting out of it is I feel that I'm learning a lot by listening to people tell their stories. I'm having connections with people and and kind of connecting the dots in my own life about why I do this and my career. And I feel like I'm giving back. And I feel like hopefully people are feeling my passion for this and wanting to learn and wanting to get the word out that for other people to have them learn and maybe even, dare I say, inspire. One of the big reasons why I did this was my next guest, Barry Katz, who also has a podcast and he is incredibly successful. I had gone on his podcast a couple years ago and it always stuck with me because I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed our conversation. He's a really sweet, genuine person. He's been in Hollywood for a very, very long time. He's an incredible manager with an unbelievable talent list. And the fact that he was doing it and he was so interesting and so interested in me, it really inspired me to give back and return the favor. So my next guest is Barry Katz. He has an incredibly successful podcast called The Industry Standard with Barry Katz. Please enjoy. All right. I'm here with Barry Katz. Hey, Barry. How's it going? Fantastic. Dude, you know that you are like probably in the top three reasons I'm doing this podcast is you're probably one or two the reason I'm doing this. I'm glad I made the cut. Dude, because uh, I did your podcast and I was like, that's so f***ing cool that you do this. You were fantastic, by oh, the way. thank you, brother. And I was like, that, I would like to do something like that. I think what you're doing is uh, amazing. I mean, uh, you have a huge podcast, which I'm going to talk about, called The Industry Standard. And basically, your, your thing is that you're launching careers. And and in how to do it, and you've launched a ton of careers as a as a manager and as and as a producer, Dave Chappelle and Nick Schwartzen and Bill Burr and Wanda Sykes and Dane Cook and Tracy Morgan to name a few. And so, what I loved about your podcast is just like talking about how when you have people on, like how did you launch your career? How did you do it? And that and that's kind of like gave me the inspiration of what I want to do here. Mine is obviously a much smaller scale and a little bit more more like intimate in terms of the producing. Yeah, you're a little bit more of a life coach than I am. Yeah, yours is a smaller scale. Let me open with Sandler. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, so I do have friends that that, that were gracious enough to do this, but I want to talk to you today about a couple of things. One, how you launched your career. Two, how you launch other people's careers. And three, how did you launch this podcast? Because I think that probably anybody who's listening to this might think, hey, maybe I want to like get in the, the comedy business or hey, maybe I want to start a podcast since it feels like everybody, including me, has one. So every, how- every time a steel mill closes, there's 5,000 <laughs> new podcasts. 
that's amazing. So you and I have known each other for a long, long time. Uh, obviously, we're both in, in in the comedy game. And so, how did you? You went to BU, correct? I went to Boston University. And how did you? Where did you grow up? How did you get started? How did you launch your career? I'll tell you. And by the way, just for your audience, I have a shitty voice, but it doesn't sound this shitty normally. I had no voice yesterday, and I was praying that it would come back for this podcast because I was so excited to be here with oh, you because you, I really have so much respect for you like the rest of the world does oh, and so much love for me you. because you're one of the nicest guys, one of the most talented guys, and one of the most strongest visions of oh, what can you. make it from the tiniest thing like a little article that's like an inch big <laughs> uh, for Con Air, which you saw and had the vision of the movie. And for me, I like to think that I have a, a vision for certain things that uh, luckily get to the next level. So, Right, so wh- where did you grow up? I grew up in Longmeadow, Massachusetts, which is an Indian word. It means Jews live here. <laughs> and, um, and I'll tell you how I got into comedy. I'll, I'll try to make it short. I, um, my dad passed away when I was four. And so my mother obviously... Uh, very, very sad and distraught. And you wake up in the middle of the night and you hear crying. And I used to walk around to the other side of the kitchen and see her washing dishes looking out the window. And you know how you see somebody's shoulders going up and back and down when they're crying. And I used to go up to her and hold her leg and try to make her laugh Mm -hmm. or try to make her feel better. And I think that's where it started. And then as a teenager, I started exploring the basement where my father's office was. And and I pried open an old file cabinet that had albums in it. And to my surprise, these old musty albums, they were all uh, African-American artists. Nat King Cole, Louis Armstrong, Diana Ross. There were like 50 albums like that and there were three albums with caucasian people on them there was jonathan winters comedy and tragedy the smothers brothers crabs walk sideways and lobsters walk straight the cover where tommy smothers is getting the guitar slammed over his head and bob newhart the button down mind and we didn't have any money and we had no record player that worked anymore So back then, uh, your older audience will know that when you went to a supermarket, for every dollar you spent, they put a green stamp in there, the S&H green stamps, and you used to lick them and put them into books, and they were each worth about, uh, I'd say, $10. And then you'd bring them to a redemption center that had gifts or things, and one of them had a record player that was... I think it cost 50 books. And I accumulated 50 books, and I got one of those fold-down record players, and I started listening to some of the albums. And even though Shirley Bassey singing Goldfinger was exciting, I was more excited by the uh, albums. Jonathan Winters was a little too crazy for me. I couldn't really follow it. How old were you? I was probably 12 or 13. The Smothers Brothers was great, but it was musical comedy, and I had the rhythm of a furnace. And so I started listening to Bob Newhart, and I memorized the driving instructor, a famous routine. And I did it at a high school talent show for a 1,000 people, (laughs) and it killed so hard. Like, when you listen to Bob Newhart's album, and just a side note to your audience— Warner Brothers Records called Bob Newhart. He was a sketch and radio guy. He was not a stand-up comedian. They called him and they asked him to do an album. 
He said in his stutter step voice, um, I, I, I don't know how he, to tell you this, but I, 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 don't, I don't do stand-up comedy. <laughs> and they just said, just get a club and just do your things. It turned out that was Warner Brother Records' first gold record in wow. their history. And so his routines were I, – I don't even know how to explain them to your audience except to say that he would, he would do characters as himself – so in other words, when you see great sketch comedians do characters and they become the characters, Bob would just do them as himself. And he would create these sketches and these dialogues between uh, uh, characters. The only thing similar to your audience, which I would have them YouTube uh, pause as they're listening and then come back, is Ellen's Conversations with God from her first Tonight Show. Yeah. That's the only thing similar that you'll find. To well, that. she also has a similar thing to Newhart, too, because Newhart was always like kind of 10 degrees of that kind of same character, which was, you know, the for his character was kind of the the the, in the, in the befuddled, kind of thoughtful, you know, you know, middle-aged guy that was you know, trying to figure out the world. And Ellen obviously has her you know, persona, which is this, you know, very lovable, sweet, energetic, hilarious, you know, woman that's you want to be your best friend. And so they have very similar feels to them, you know, the kind of the the rhythm of their comedy feels feels similar. But right. I want to go back to something. Great observation. You, I so, go, yeah. But I want to go back to something you said, because I, you know, obviously I, I have a similar story of why I lo love comedy, obviously come, came from tragedy. So I think all of us as people that just want to put good into the world, you wanted your mom to, to laugh. You wanted her, you wanted to take something that was dark and, and, and terrible, and I'm sorry for that, by the way, and and turn it and, and, and brighten her, her mood. And I think that all comedians of that way. I think that all comedians have have come from some sort of darkness or, or are reacting to some sort of darkness and want to shine a light on it. And that's why I love comedians so much. And that's why I love comedy so much is it's just it comes from such a pure place of really trying to change someone's mood from either having a shitty day or a terrible tragedy or just a or general malaise in their life and trying to you know shine a light on it and, and make it brighter and turn it around. And, and I think the thing that's interesting about what you said about doing the Bob Newhart bit in front of a thousand people is that rush of laughter is so addictive and i have it as a filmmaker for sure you know just being and i will i've talked about it with everybody here those previews where you're sitting and you know and for you um obviously earlier in your career representing all those stand-up comedians and launching all those careers it's the same thing being in that audience of 400 500 people and obviously later later in your career with these guys much much bigger audiences is so awesome. That's like that's all it is for. I mean, you you sure you're going to make money? Sure, you're going to your career is going to go where it's going to go. But just those moments of of laughter and seeing a bit or a joke work is is what we keep coming back for. It's like a drug. It just keeps you coming back. It's true. And when I started doing stand up in Boston, I started um, doing it. And for everybody listening, whatever you love and whatever you want to do. You have to just do it no matter what. You have to figure out how to get in. I, I don't care if you're in this business or you want to make hats or whatever it is. You just have to get in. And so with stand-up comedy, it was a boom in Boston. One of the things I want to do is find out. I wanted to learn about it. So I started deciding I'm going to go. But I didn't really know how I was going to go. And I remember there was a blizzard in Boston and I had kind of passed my mind, and I was like every college student, you're kind of messing up. 
And did you study anything particular? No, I studied working with the disabled. I was like a phenom working with the disabled. I'd worked for five years. I'd I'd been in charge of so many different things at such a young age in working with the disabled. have nothing to do with entertainment. So I was on a path to be like a huge star in the world of disabled and how to help and do that thing. And then this blizzard happened, and I heard laughter. I was in the middle of Kenmore Square. There was nobody there was, it was a federal emergency, and I walk up the stairs, and there's a guy on stage looks like Larry from the Three Stooges, and I'll never forget. He's got a guitar, and he's strumming, and he's saying, Rachel, my dear, wish you were here. Oh, how I loved her. Having sex with Rachel was amazing. <laughs> it was like a concert. Uh, beach balls would be hitting me in the head. Frisbees would be flying across the room, and every time she wanted more, she'd light a match <laughs> and then he just said thanks and walked past me and and out in the and i you like a movie i ran outside he was gone i went upstairs who is that they said that's stephen wright so and so he was the first comedian i saw so then i did research in the clubs how to do the open mics how to figure it out i really immersed myself in it then i got a job as a doorman at a comedy club and as larry king said in my podcast i took a job for ten dollars $10 a night. I was working for six hours. I was able to do five minutes of stand-up at the end. But as Larry King said to me on the podcast, it's amazing. He said, just get in there. Yeah. Do the shittiest job possible. Because you know why? One day somebody gets sick. One day does somebody doesn't show up. One day somebody gets fired. And you know what? They look to you and they say, kid, can you do that? They fired the guy there. I took over the comedy club. I was a teenager. Wow. And I was booking the greatest comedians, Bob Goldthwait, Dennis Leary, Lenny Clark, Anthony Clark, Paula Poundstone, Jonathan Katz. And I was in charge of this place and able to do stand-up, and then I realized I was better on the other side, and I started booking shows all over the country. And then For I, those stand-ups? Yes. Or for that club? For No, for the stand-ups, okay, for so my you, own company. Okay, so let's stop for one second and back up, because you're, you're, you're moving very quickly, and there's Sorry. a lot. It's okay. There's a lot of stuff I want to unpack here. First of all, I can't agree with you more. You have to get in and be where the thing is that you love, right? So, uh, you know, a lot of people have said, if you're going to be in the movies, you got to be in L.A. I mean, you know, maybe you could have been in New York for a while, but probably you need to be in L.A. If you want to do stand-up, go where the stand-up is, is, you know, booming. Like you were in Boston at the time. New York obviously has a huge Chicago if you want to do sketch or, or improv or something like that. So go where the business is you want to go. If, you know, if you want to do, you know, short-term content, then you you got to be on YouTube. You know, it's not a geographical place, but it's a but it's a place where where that content is um, consumed and, and produced. And so you went where you just happened to get quote unquote lucky because you obviously Boston was booming, but you knew that you loved comedy. You heard this thing, you were addicted to it, and you went to the place. And then, as you said, just get the job. And I wouldn't also just say someone's going to get sick. Get there, take the job whatever way you have to take the job and be the best you can be at it. Because if you work hard and it, again, like I, you know, obviously we both have careers, but I love making comedy and I love when my 
content makes people laugh, that's more important to me than the salary. And so if you can get there and that's the most important thing and then take the job and do the best you can be because you're passionate about it, that's what's going to be recognized when the person does get sick or whatever. Absolutely. And so what, what was the decision from being a door guy and seeing all these great comedians to making you think – that you could manage these people and and take them to the next level. I mean, what 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 made you think they would need you? What what skill set did you think you had that you could say, "Hey, I'm going to take you guys to the next level." It's an interesting thing, and uh, I don't want it to come across the wrong way. But Dennis Leary uh, had a manager from New York named Jason Solomon, who's still a manager today, and um, and he came down to Boston to meet with Dennis. And he talked with me for a while. And, you know, when you talk to somebody, you realize that by talking to them that you can do what they do. It's not an insult. It's just you see how they're doing. You see what they're doing. You see how they talk to the people. And you're like, okay, well, I can do this. And I think I had the skill set to be able to do it. And he encouraged me to come down to New York. And I'll never forget this. I drive down to New York and I... I come to, he says, come to my office at 57th and Broadway. Here's the address. And I come there, and the address is like a brownstone <laughs> on 57th Street. And I buzz the buzzer, and he says, uh, come up to 404 or whatever the name. And I said, great. And I go, there's no elevator. I'm walking up four flights of stairs. I'm winded. <sighs> I get to the door. I knock, open the door, and... The door opens. He says, hey, welcome. Just sit down here. I'm just with my client here, um, Roger. It was Roger Cabler, who was a tremendous impressionist, who had a sitcom called Rhythm and Blues opposite Martin when Martin came on the air. And he was signing him to a management contract in his living room. <laughs> and that was his office. Right. And I talked with him for a while, and then I left. And as I walked out, I said, I'm not f***ing having an office in my living room. I don't mind having an office at home someday because that's what it's all going to be coming to, but we got to get an I got to get an office on 57th and Broadway. This is where my mom told me to be. This is where I'm going to be. And I remember going to a place at 57th and Broadway and finding Spotlight, the agency was there, who represented Leno and they were the biggest agency for booking personal appearances. And I remember I went upstairs and I said, "Listen, uh, do you have any offices available? They tried to sell me on being an agent. I said, no, I, I want I love office. that you just walked in to try to find an office yeah. and you got a job. And yeah. then you turned the job down, which, is, job, which is amazing. Turned the job down. And they said, if you want, you can have an office in here. We'll rent you an office. And I said, great. Uh, and they showed it to me. It was like literally the size of this table. <laughs> Room for like a little table, a chair, and a little chair on the other side. But at a window overlooking 57 oh, wow. and Broadway. And you're in a, the biggest agency for the, exactly the business you want to get in. So you're by association, you've already jumped light years ahead of where you were. Yeah, and this is what happens to you. So then the guy, the guy Bob Williams, who's a voice like mine now, he'd, <laughs> he'd be like, hey, kid, you want the office? I said, yeah, I'd love the office. Great, $600 a month. I'm like, $600 a month? It's like, this is, this is like, it doesn't even fit my coffin in here. He said, kid, you either want it or you don't want it. Get out or get in. That's a great and, metaphor for everything. And basically, I just realized, so what am I going to not go in here for $3,600 extra? Well, that's probably worth 300 
I got to do this. Right. I got to get in here. I have money from the club, which I was running, play it against Sam's, which Sandler used to uh, work. And he actually auditioned for me there uh, the first time he came to Boston. Wow. Amazing. And so I took it. Now, I just want to share something with you about the tragedy because, uh, you know, in your first episode, you share the tragedy that you went through and why you started doing comedies. So fate is a very strange thing, and fate leads us to everything. It leads us to the darkest times, and it leads us to the lightest times. And there's no explanation for it. There never is any explanation for it. And so I got married in Boston to somebody who I love dearly. She passed away after eight months at 23 years old. Jesus. And so I had this thriving business in Boston. I was booking like 50 comedy clubs all over New England. I like had a comedy club. I was running another comedy club. It it was like it was becoming amazing, developing people. And I realized that there's this positive negative thing, kind of like fate. So every time I'd go out, people would be hugging me. Are you okay? You doing okay, Barry? And the great being great people, but just a reminder every time that of what happened. And so one day I just woke up and I just got in my car and drove to New York. I didn't tell anybody. Got off at the 79th Street boat basin exit, made a left, went as far as I could go to a restaurant cafe sat at the bar. There was a telephone, um, a pay telephone, which is not existing anymore, (laughs) and a yellow page is hanging off of it. And I looked up real estate agents, and I called and left the number of the pay phone. And the first one that called, I asked to see places. The first place I saw was at 1182nd Street at Central Park and 82nd Street. And I got this uh, studio apartment for $935 a month. I put first, last, and security down, and I was in New York City. Wow. And I didn't know what I was going to do. And then faithfully got a call from a guy named Eddie Brill, who used to uh, do the warm-up on Letterman and book the comics. He says, you know, there's a comedy club that I've been running in the Greenwich Village. I'm going to Los Angeles to try to make it. Why don't you talk to the owners and try to take it over? I go down there. Rick Messina, who is now managing uh, Drew Carey and Tim Allen, but at the time was a booker like I was in New England, in New York, had taken it over. I called him up. I said, I'd love to have that club. He said, listen, if it dies, you can have it. Six weeks. I called him every week. Again, persistence. Yeah, for sure. Getting in, getting where where you want to be, and working hard, and not giving up. That's right. Never give up. I have a stone in my office. Never give up can't ever give up. And so the sixth week I called him, he said, Barry, f*** it, just take it over. And I went to the owner. I said, I'd like to turn this into the Boston Comedy Club in New York City. He said, I think you're crazy, but I like you. You can have the club. I'll take the bar. You take the door, and it's yours. Wow. Can't do any worse than it is now. <laughs> right. And I started it. And, and you I, called it the Boston, the Boston Comedy, Comedy That's Club. That's very smart. And in 1988... I put a lineup together. And when you took this office and you took this apartment, did you have any clients or you still were managing clubs and, you know, taking the door from the clubs in Boston in this huge business? You 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 weren't yet a manager. You knew you wanted to be, but you just came down to say, F- it, I'm going to be in New York. I want to do this new career, and this is the place I got to be. Can't do it in Boston. I got to do it in New York. That's right. That's, That's when I really decided I wanted to be a manager because I felt that, 
you know, that old expression, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. Mm-hmm. And, and I wanted to get in at the New York clubs, and I wanted to start the relationships going, and I wanted to open up a club there because I knew that there's a lot of comedians that don't get stage time. And if I can put them on at my club and get them stage time, I always tell any comic who wants to start, you know, uh, you want to be able to start in a place where you can work the most. So you go to New York, let's say, let's say you, uh, the average comic can get up, a working comic can get up like 20, you know, 20 times a week. In L.A., the average comic maybe five times a week. Well, after a year, who's going to be four times better right. as a comedian? If you're doing a podcast every week and one guy's doing a podcast every month, well, you're going to be better at what you do. I've done probably 300 of these things. I'm not a, I'm not a podcaster. I do this in my spare time. I I love what happened. I didn't know it was going to happen, but it happened. And so I started managing and I, my first clients were CK, Chappelle, uh, Tracy Morgan, Jim Brewer, Daryl Hammond, uh, Dane Cook, uh, and, and and things just start oh, happening. Absolutely. Hey, before we continue on, do you know that every car comes with a chair of stories? That ding in your bumper when you nervously picked up a first date? The luxury package you got after a big promotion? Or the mileage you saved by riding your bike all summer? While you can't put a price tag on your stories, now with True Car, you can at least find out what your car is worth when it's time to sell it or trade it in. Just go to True Car, simply enter your license plate number, and watch how your car's details pop up. Then answer a few simple questions. Once you're finished, you'll get a true cash offer sent in minutes, which you can take to a local certified dealer to cash out or trade in. So when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. True cash offer not available in all areas. Move over, YouTube. The Collider Network is now on Podcast One. Get your fix for any of your pop culture needs with shows like Collider Factory, Heroes, Movie Talk, Jedi Council, One on One with Christian Harloff, and Movie Trivia Schmodown. Download and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One today. And remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Alexa isn't the only one with breaking news. Make sure to hang around at the end of this podcast for the latest breaking headlines on the AP News Minute. This is the Producer's Guide with Todd Garner. So for people out there that are listening that are interested in the comedy business, as a manager, especially at that time, and you guys do like the Yankees of stand-ups that you, that you had as your clients – a, what were you looking for? And B, what advice were you giving them at that time to make sure that they had the best chance of success? I think the biggest thing that uh, I like to think I was was somebody who was a positive force in their lives, somebody who was there all the time, 24-7, and gave them that boost of confidence when the mind goes the other way because your mind is incredibly powerful your listeners we all know that we can go we can say the littlest thing and but it borders on the negative than the positive you know and we all know what that is it's like you could start your podcast and you could talk to your friend i'm starting this podcast uh, my first episode is sandler but you know i don't know what's going to happen you could say that as a throwaway to your friend. 
well, let's go on the negative side mm-hmm. instead of saying, I'm pretty excited about what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And that's going on the other side. Not It's not going up, I'm going to crush it. Right. It's not, you know, putting your bat out and saying, I'm going to hit it over the center field wall. <laughs> right. But the key is to stay over the line of positive because every artist that you work with, I don't care if it's Sandler or, you know, I was at a premiere of his and I'm not going to say which one it was. And and the movie ended and I said, how, how are you doing? How are you feeling? And he said, um, not good. <laughs> not good. I'm not 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 feeling good about this one. Right. And um and that was something that, you know, he I mean he was being honest with himself, yeah. but he was going on the negatives. He was putting that out there. Mm-hmm. Now he's been enormously successful because he stays on the other side more than anybody else. So that's the one thing I did. And the other thing I did was I always was a, a believer in 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 repetition. And so if they were going out for something, if they were going out for a role or a movie pitch or um, a stand-up spot auditioning for Letterman, it was always the repetition going out with them over and over and over again until they did that audition for that person. If it was Saturday Night Live, I mean, with Tracy Morgan, I mean, that story, which we don't have time for, is is insane because I probably was like boot camp. There was an office that was empty next to mine that was in transition. And I'd have them come up there every day for like three hours in the morning, three hours in the afternoon. And we just work on it over and over and over and over again. And I think in anything you do, the more repetition you do, the better chance you have of doing it. I think the frustrating thing for everybody in every business who's ever listening is that thing where you know you're successful, you're doing it, and then this one person comes along and they've never done anything before, they've never done any time doing it, and they go into your business and immediately they become a success, and you're like, God, <laughs> what happened? How did that happen? I don't understand. I've been killing myself. And this guy came, like when I was a swimmer, I was a competitive swimmer, and I would shave my head and my body, and I was good, and I would do really well. And there was this one kid on my team who never practiced. He just flopped around in the water every time and won every race. Right, his natural ability. Until the championships where he lost and got touched out because he didn't work hard enough. But I guess that's the lesson. But the fact is, up until that point, the vision was that right. guy's winning. And so when you're looking out there in any profession, it's the long goal. Sure. And keep and keep at it. And then what? when you were in the audience and, and, and watching these guys do their stand-up, what got you? Like what made you say, that's the person I can get, I, I'm gravitating towards talent-wise? What was it that, that, got, that piqued your interest? And I want to say this, that um, what piques my interest, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter what piques my interest because what I would love to impart on your audience is the fact that everything happens. Every incarnation of anything happens. You're entrenched in the movie business. I made a movie, a guy wrote a script, no revisions, and within 13 weeks, they were shooting the movie. I've also been a part of movies where they've gone eight years in the making. For sure. There's comedians that – the comedians that I gravitate towards are huggable, lovable, charisma, and star quality. And physical – I see something that lets me know 
they can do every cylinder of the engine of the entertainment business. So I see that they can write, they can act dramatically, they can act comedically, they can host, they can do radio, they can write books, they can podcast, they can they can do um, you know uh, the fifth lead on a television show. They could be the lead in a movie. I look for somebody who can do everything, not just one thing really well. And is that what you consider star quality? When you say, quote-unquote, star quality, do you mean that? Like they're, they're, you could be ubiquitous across the entire board? Or do you feel like there's just something that, you know, people, you know, there's a, there's a saying dead behind the eyes, which is the opposite. Do, or is there just some sparkle that you see that says that's star quality? What, what, what Can you define that? Yeah, I think that to me, like, look, um, uh, they say beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. Maybe charisma is in the eyes of the beholder. But when we walk around the mall, you see very few people who have that thing. And I don't know how to describe it except for what happens when I look through my eyes. And and that's something I see. It's like a – it's so odd. Like I'm going to tell you this quick story. I, I was able – I had a little meeting lunch with Chappelle – Maybe it was about four years ago, and I managed him for eight years. One of the first movies I was ever involved in was him and the doorman of my comedy club at the time, Neil Brennan. Wow. Pitching Half-Baked. Sure, I remember you guys pitching that to, to me. To Universal yeah. and to wherever. Uh, yeah, you came around to everybody. Yeah. I was at Disney at the time. It was not something that I could buy. But yeah. I, I got to say, and we talked about this on your podcast, Half-Baked to this day is still hands down one of the funniest pitches I've ever heard in my life. Just Chappelle and Neil pitching that entire movie and Chappelle pr- probably actually being baked while he was pitching. It was the funniest pitch I've ever heard. I couldn't make it because I was at Disney, but gosh, that movie. And I, by the way, I think the movie holds up. But man, that pitch was funny. Because they pitched the weird way. They pitched with index cards. Neil had these index cards and he would put them down for each act and then whenever he put a different color card down, that was Dave's <laughs> color-coordinated co- color way to get up and do a comedic oh, bit. It was amazing. So I sit down, and I just – my ass hits the cushion, and he looks at me and says, do you know uh, uh, do you know the anniversary it is uh, right now? I, I said, uh, no. What is it? He said, it's like 20, I forget, 20 years ago today or 25 years ago today that you met me. Do you remember what you said to me? I said, uh, no, but I just, uh, we just sat down. I just, can we just, no, do you know what you said to me? I said, yeah, I remember like it was yesterday. I met you in the comedy club and I'd never met you before. And I shook your hand, never saw your act. And I shook your hand and I said, I think you're going to be one of the biggest stars in comedy. You're going to change the face of comedy. You're going to win Emmy awards. You're going to, you're going to be the most respected and revered comedian. You're going to be like on the Mount Rushmore of comedy. And I want to represent you. And he slapped his hand on the table. You know how dishes, you know, shake when you do that? And he becomes like an agitated Dave. He's like, that's right. That's right. And it haunts me. It haunts me every f***ing day. Oh, I'm, wow. like, I'm like, Dave, Jesus. I mean, I just, we just sat down. And he gets in the solemn Dave. And he's like, I'm sorry, man. It's just, it's just every time... I think about that. It just bothers me, and I think to myself all the time, how the f*** 
did he know? <laughs> Perfect. And that's so, amazing. and so, that's the thing is, I can't quantify right. how I knew. I would shake comedians' hands. I would be around them, and I would get the feeling that they could do things. Jay Moore, Saturday Night Live when he was nineteen. Um, Jim Brewer. Uh, got fired from the most high-profile show on television coming forth, the show called Buddies, and got Saturday Night Live right after, going from the negative to the positive. Mm -hmm. I never took no for an answer. I never always tried to turn no's into yeses. I always try to impress upon every artist, if you're undeniable, you cannot be denied. Great things started happening for everybody, and and I soon went to L.A., and I got a – because of something I did in the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival where I got shut out one year, and I said, F*** this. I'm not getting shut out. I'm going to bring 18 artists to Montreal, hire a comedy club, and do my own thing, and that's I awesome. did, and I got five deals. Oh, there was no other deals in Montreal that year. And Disney gave me a four-year executive producer deal. And I was, I mean, I was in this penthouse, like it was, like must have been 1,500 square feet of office space. I don't even know what the f*** I'm doing. And and I'm... You still only have the furniture from your first office. <laughs> That's probably right. <laughs> like, how the f*** am I going to fill this up? <laughs> now, this is, uh, first of all, I, 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 so many people have this that exact story of like, f*** it, I'll do my own show, Rebel Wilson, Isla. I mean, there's so many people that just said, I'll write my own thing. I'll do my own thing. I'll pay for my own thing. So it's an, that, uh, that's an amazing testament to you and your, and your perseverance. And Jay Moore is actually a good segue to the next part of what I want to talk to you about, which is your podcast. So if you're out there and you've just been fired from the steel mill and you want to <laughs> and you want to start a podcast honestly i'm not kidding when i say you i took you to lunch and i said look i'm thinking of doing this podcast thing and you you laid it out for me exactly what i should do and and, and here i am walk me through you have this huge career as a manager you obviously represented the the top comedians in the world and you've got this huge career walk me through the, the decision to do the podcast and how you actually produce a podcast because i've never talked about that on this show Absolutely. Well, just to tell you, anybody out there, uh, I know Todd doesn't want me to probably say this, but you can produce a podcast with your phone if you want to. I mean, if you really wanted to and you have no money and you have no resources, there's apps on your phone for uh, recording apps that are, are great. And nobody does it that way, really. Maybe 1% of the people do it that way. But the point is, if you don't have the money and you're poor and you're in a bad situation, it doesn't matter. You can start doing anything anyway. But there's many uh, pieces of equipment you get. Like we're here at Podcast One. There's a huge board. There's a board operator. There's a studio. This costs a lot of money here. So there's different forms of equipment you can get. And all you have to do, which will save time on this podcast, is to search podcast equipment on the web and you'll see a number of different little devices and things that people use you'll probably find like five or ten options and that's the technical side how you can start if it comes to uploading your thing to uh, all the podcast your your podcast all the different places again not to waste time here you just go to youtube and you just type in how do i upload my podcast to all the platforms and there'll be a tutorial for you so i don't want to waste time here mm -hmm. 
with that because I think it's easier that way. And, and, and plus, I think it's important for people to do their own research on things rather than me uh, walk them through it. But I will tell you how I got started. Yeah, and also what – and also in your opinion, because you have a hugely successful podcast, what do you think makes a good pos- podcast? Like, wh- like what do you have to say? Because, I mean, obviously there's a ton of podcasts. It's like I'm, I was on Survivor and I now have a podcast and I'm just talking about me on Survivor. What what what? Because you and I had this conversation and it really made me think about what I wanted to say. So t- t- walk me through like what you wanted to say, why you thought you needed to do it as a podcast, and then how you got it going. Because it's a great story. I will, and I also want to say this: when we met, I felt like uh, when we met, when I left and got in the car, and I never told you this. I got in the car and I'm like, my God. I- I felt like a manager there <laughs> when I was were. talking to Todd yeah. because what I was doing with, with when I was sitting with Todd, Todd was thinking about doing the podcast, and Todd probably won't say this on the air, but again, there's that line of negative and positive. He wanted to do it, but he had like a fear, a, a little tick inside him that was saying, eh, but if I do this, are people going to look at me this way? Are they going to say this? Uh, By the way, I live my life every day like that. <laughs> this okay. is not specific to the podcast. Okay. This is me in a nutshell. <laughs> okay. And so my thing with him mostly in that meeting was to say, listen, I think you can do this and you can do it really, really well. Now, how many people in any profession are encouraging somebody to compete with them or to go out? <laughs> but but I, I love Todd and I, I thought he had something really great to say and a different take. And uh, and that was my goal in the, in the meeting was to to have you be able to do what you did, which was exciting. And the fact that you invited me on is is just uh, a humbling uh, honor with all the people. I feel like I should be wearing clown shoes <laughs> next to all the people you've had on the thing. But my story Not is such – my client, Jay Moore, who I represented for 25 years, wanted to start a podcast and, and – like every artist, you never know when they're going to start. You get the call the night before, I'm starting the podcast. I'm like, great. And he says, uh, I want you to be my first guest. I said, Jay, this I'm not, I'm not, I don't do interviews. I can't be your first guest. He said, be in my garage at 7. Hung up on me. By the way, that entire conversation is amazing. I'm doing a podcast. You're my first guest. And it's Jay Moore, by the way, who has a lot to say about a lot. And be in my garage is that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, so... I get there, and I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, well, first no- of all, it could be a hit, too. You're like, <laughs> this could all be, you screwed something up, and he's like, you're going to open the garage and be like, hey, there's, a, there's some plastic on the ground and a chair. What's happening? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And so I get there, and again, there's no way to prepare because I've never been, I've never been a guest on these things before. I don't know what I'm – so I just say to myself – just roll with it. You're always improvisational like comics. You have a little comedy in you. And we go, and he starts talking about the business and his career. And I, he says, I want you to be truthful. Don't hold anything back. And I have a truthful conversation about his career, the times that he's complicated winning, the money he's passed on, the decisions he's made that I haven't agreed with and those that I have. And he gets the call the next day, and he has me come in the radio stations doing a radio station and shows me the ratings is the number one wow podcast in the world that day and i'm recipient of the coattails of that and i'm getting messages i'm getting it's crazy 
And he says, I want you to do my third podcast. I already recorded my second one. I said, listen, I'm not doing your third podcast. You show up in my garage at 7. I do the third, the 10th, the 18th, the 25th. And before I know it, millions of people have listened to me giving advice about the career and and things I think are are proper and the way to do things, which is just my opinion. It might not be anybody else's opinion. And he kept saying, you're a hundred percenter, which meant that every review and every comment was positive, and which I love because I'm a very positive person. And then after a while, he kept saying to me, listen, you know, I think you should do your own podcast. And I asked everybody I knew in the business about it. Uh, I'm not going to mention their names. And they all said, no, don't do it. This is a bad move, Barry. There's no managers that do podcasts. Uh, you know where all the bodies are buried. You know all the stories. People are going to get pissed off. What happens if your podcast is better than all your clients? Uh, you're going to get fired and you're going to do this. I said, well, listen, I've been fired many times in sure. my life. I'll be fired again. I'll be hired again. And I just went against everybody because I felt to myself, like when you get somebody on Saturday Night Live with your talent and their talent, it's an amazing feeling, but you've only helped one artist right. or you've only helped one person. Yes, I guess Lorne and his team, if the client does well or helped, like Daryl Hammond was on for 12 years, uh, NBC has helped, millions of people watch the entertainment. But in terms of the person that you're actually guiding to that point with their talent, you only help one person. The podcast, you can help millions of people and you can reach millions of people. And sometimes things happen that you can't believe. Like like I interviewed George Shapiro, Jerry Seinfeld's manager, and I get a handwritten uh, card in the mail. By the way, everybody listening, write handwritten thank you cards to everyone. Don't text a thank you. Right. Don't email a thank you. Handwritten. Yep. Every time. Trust me. It's the greatest well, thing. because it never happens anymore. So if you get something in the mail that's tactile and you see it and someone took the time to do it as opposed to just banging out an email, it means so much more. So much. So George sends me this letter thanking me. And he said, I thought you might want to see this in the letter is another letter addressed to him. I open it up. It says, George, I could have listened to you on Barry's Industry Standard Podcast 10 times. One of the greatest interviews I've ever heard. Thank you so much, Judd. Wow. And I thought, holy sh**, Judd Apatow is listening to my podcast. That's awesome. And so I called Judd, and I, he did the show. And what I realized afterwards doing the show, when I started it, I started with Doug Herzog. He said yes, who was the president of Icon at the time. And I knew if I got the president of something, once you get one person, you're going to get others. Once I get the first big comedian, I'm going to get that person. Once I get the first movie producer, I'm going to get that person. So when you look at my first 20 episodes, it's like one of the best people like Tom Warner or or you know people like that. You Even casting directors or people like Larry Moss, who's the greatest acting guru of our generation. And then you could get people. But there were still people that I didn't ask because I thought, Again, that line going to the negative, and they'll just say no. I know that feeling. And I was in Montreal, and Kevin Hart was there. And I, you know, I started at the comedy club with Kevin. He asked me to manage him. I said no, like an idiot, <laughs> nineteen years ago. Uh, but I still have a great relationship with him, and I love him, and I respect him. And I asked him five minutes later. He says, "Of course, I'll do it." And he spent two and a half hours with me. 
And so I think the great thing about the podcast, and so when I launched with Doug Herzog, Jay Moore calls me again, brings me in the radio station, and shows me the ratings, and it's number three. Wow. And I said, that's impossible. I'm nobody. Nobody knows who I am. He says, it's word of mouth, but don't worry, you'll drop like a stone. (laughs) But the fact that you started there, you're going to always be in the top 500 because people will know when you keep up this level of content. And I was like in shock, and he walked out, and I'll never forget this. He comes back in as I'm standing there in shock, and he grabs me by both shoulders. You know, somebody grabs you, and they look you in the eye. And he said, cats, catsy. I'm like, yeah, Jay, I love you, buddy. I love you too, Jay. Listen, man, you're not supposed to do better than your <laughs> clients. And he kissed me on the back of the neck and walked out. Awesome. So now, as you're producing your show, you said you've done over 300 episodes. It's fucking amazing, by the way. What, what do you? How do you keep it going? Like what? Because it's obviously, and it's and this is we always talk about this just in terms of other content. Now we can talk about it in terms of the podcast is being authentic. And clearly, Jay wanted to you know show some warts and say, look, I made some bad choices, and you know let's walk through the history of the good and the bad together. And that's pretty much what you do in your podcast. You're very thoughtful, and you think about okay, what happened? How did you launch your career? What, what were the ups and downs? Like. So for you, as you're doing this podcast, like walk me through like when you're out and you're going to pick a guest, like wh- what do you want to say to the world? What what are you saying in your podcast? To me, I always want it to be about the journey from humble beginnings to how you started getting going and how you got the shit kicked out of you, how you came back, how you got the shit kicked out of you again, how you came back and how you kept getting up and kept walking to get to the place that you are today. And the stories, because of your podcast, people know your story, but are just incredible. Patty Jenkins never did a comedy thing in her life, writes a script because she hears about a serial killer in her hometown, Monster, sits at a table by fate next to a producer who gives her a million dollars, doesn't want the million so much as she wants Charlize Theron and fights to get her, gets another three million but her deal is $65,000. That's it. No back end, no nothing. She makes nothing, doesn't even have a dress to go to the awards programs. Okay, and then she doesn't work in a significant big job for years until Wonder Woman. It's amazing. So things happen in your life and careers. Byron Allen, 18 years old, gets a Tonight Show. You know, because he's hanging around as, in, as a young kid because his mother has a job on the NBC lot. And he's hanging out waiting to speak to Johnny Carson, just say hello and goodbye to him. Just everybody, Andrew Panay, another movie producer, is an intern at the company where he was at, sleeping on the floor in the office, just doing research until he figured out how to bring them wedding crashers. And then he became an owner of the company. Well, it's so important, too, what you're saying of just getting the shit kicked out of you, because that, to me, is so important for people to hear, because what happens is... I think there's this feeling when you're outside of the system that you're outside of the system and that the people on the inside are kind of all kicking around going, especially this time of year around the Golden Globes and the Academy Awards time, all the internet puts out there is look at all the schmoozing going on in these parties. And I think that, you know, there is this misnomer that we're all just kind of having the easy here and we don't. It's hard and we get the kick out of us. I, you know, not only daily, but hourly here, I'm going to the negative again, but I feel it's important to talk about that because 
everybody gets a shit kicked out of them, if not daily, hourly. And you have to you have to just take the lumps and keep going and be, be you know, be you know, have perseverance and also like, which is on your rock, never give up and just, and just keep going. And so that's why I was so inspired by you and your podcast and what you did as a manager and how you've managed your career. And it really inspired me to do this. And I, and I just thank you so much for doing your podcast. It's so important for people to hear these stories that we're all just not like rich kids that, that, you know, were handed a job. It's truly amazing, you know, when you think Kevin Hart was like sleeping on couches of friends who were comedians taking the bus up from Philadelphia. The guy, the first eight pilots he did failed. Um, when he finally got a pilot, he's at Radio City Music Hall at the announcements. The network president is on stage. He's mic'd up, ready to go on. He's flown in the entire cast because they don't pay for him first class. And somebody comes up to him and says, Kevin, uh, listen, I don't know how to tell you this, but um, your show has been canned. Holy s***. Wow. And so everything has happened, and I've had my uh, setbacks, and everybody will have their setbacks, but fate will take you there. I want to tell the audience something. My son asked me to buy him a sweatshirt. I just gave him a credit card, said, bye, you've been really great. Sweatshirt comes. He puts a sweatshirt on. He says, how do you like it? I said, I love it. On the front of the sweatshirt, it says these words. I love this. Seek discomfort. And I was just like blown away that he got that because to me, the message to your audience is to seek discomfort because if you seek comfort, you're not going to get where you want to go. You got to push yourself to the next thing. Look at Adam McKay. He's successful in all these comedy movies. He had the, he could just stay in his lane if he wanted to, but he didn't. He did drama. What happened? Won awards. Look at Greg Garcia. Did yes, dear. Not critically acclaimed. Said, you know, I'm. I can do different thing. My name is Earl. Raising hope. The guest book. Look at Chuck Lorre, all those CBS comedies. That's my lane, baby. I'm making millions. The Kaminsky Method. Let me do something different. Wins all the awards. And so for you and this podcast, you're doing something different. And you get a lot of respect for it. And I have tremendous respect for you for doing it because a lot of people won't do it because they're afraid. Oh, somebody's going to look at me and say, I'm not as good a producer because I, I'm doing a podcast now. <laughs> or uh, he's taking too much time away. Or, but what you're doing is you're inspiring people. Oh, and you. to me, the podcast for me was I didn't want to help just one person. I love helping one person. I love that aspect. I'll do it every day. But I love reaching millions of people with industry standard, just like you do with your podcast. And I want to have a positive message out there. And in terms of management, you talk about what I look for. One of the first comics I saw that I, I loved what they did, but it wasn't in my lane, was Joe Rogan, a tremendously powerful young stand-up comedian. But his comedy was more on the dark side at that time. And... And I saw what he did. He could murder any room, kill it. Just such a great comic, powerful force. But it wasn't my lane at the time. And at that time, I didn't never approached him. And even if I approached him, he probably would have told me to go f*** myself. Who knows? But the point being is that he's had a great career without me. And there's a lot of actors who've had a great career without you. 
And and if you if you look in your life and your career and think, oh my God, I I can't do it because I've got to get all these people on my side. That's not the way it is. I'm looking here at a speck on this table. Okay, it's probably one one hundred thousandth of this table's or this room space. But whatever you do in life, if you reach that one speck in whatever you do, you're going to be a fucking multimillionaire. So you can't think about like, okay, well, if I don't work with this person, I don't work with that person. There's going to be people successful without you. And there's going to be people successful with you. But just fight forward, forge forward with what you do and find your lane and go for it. You don't have to reach everybody. You don't have to represent everybody. You don't have to, as a comedian, be loved by everybody. You don't have to write a song that everybody in the world knows. It doesn't have to matter like that. It doesn't have to happen. You can be successful just thinking straightforward about what you want to do, how you want to do it, and being undeniable in what you do, and you'll succeed. Oh, wow. Great advice, brother. And thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. You are honestly one of the top reasons I, I did it, and I'm, you know, I'm thankful that you listen. I'm just, you know, hopefully, that'll make you proud. So thanks for doing this, buddy. I love you a lot. I love you, and I'm so honored to be here. Thank you so much. Right on. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of The Producer's Guide. We're produced by Kirsten Woodward and Steve Delamater. I want to answer all your questions about the business, so make sure to tweet me at Todd underscore Garner or use hashtag Producer's Guide on Twitter. See you next week. Thanks for listening to The Producer's Guide with Todd Garner. Download new episodes every Thursday on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, and Apple Podcasts. Make sure to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Hello guys, it's MMA fighter Chael Sonnen. Check out my podcast, You're Welcome, with Chael Sonnen every Wednesday and Friday right here at Podcast One. We cover the latest in mixed martial arts and everything else going on in the world of sport. Listen free to You're Welcome with Chael Sonnen, exclusively available at PodcastOne.com and on the Podcast One app. If you love the show, share it with a friend and leave us a rating and review.